Hello, and welcome back to Force Material, the series where we explore some of the many stories at the intersection of sport, entertainment, lifestyle, and culture. This podcast is brought to you by Force, a collaboration between leaders in sport and sports business journal, and in association with our founding partners, Constellation Brands and GMR Marketing. Force is a collection of social and content experiences, all designed to identify and unlock the areas where sport collides with entertainment, lifestyle, and culture. We're right in the thick of putting together a major event experience in New York, which is set for Tuesday 23rd and Wednesday 24th of May at Chelsea Industrial in New York. If you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.4-se.com, that's for the number, or at force underscore events on Twitter and Instagram. Last year, the global sports apparel market generated an estimated 191 billion US dollars in revenue. Clearly there's a ton of money in merch, so we wanted to delve into the world of sports merchandise. Merchandise can take many different forms, but today we're taking the sartorial angle. What exactly is merchandise, and why make it? What factors should be considered in the design process? How much power is in a well-designed logo and recognisable company iconography, and at what point does it transcend sport to become a fashion statement? My name is Cameron McDonald. I'm a content producer at Leaders in Sport, self-proclaimed fashionista, and your narrator for this episode. To understand more about the world of licensed merchandise, we enlisted a fantastic group of experts. We wanted to hear from retailers and manufacturers of licensed sports merchandise, so for that, we spoke to Matthew Primack, SVP of International Business Affairs and Development at Fanatics, and to Samantha Gibb, Head of PR and Digital Communications EMEA at New Era. For a perspective on marketing, we also consulted Dr. Lauren Birch, Senior Lecturer in Sports Business at Loughborough University London. And for one on design, we spoke to Mirko Borsha and Kolya Busha from global design studio Bureau Borsha. So let's get right into it. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. like everybody wants to get their hands on sports merch. Recently, we even saw Arsenal FC doing keepy-uppies with the Kardashians, as Kim Kardashian and her son Sade donned team shirts at the Emirates Stadium. Kim, you're doing amazing, There's much to be said around the topic of sports merchandise, so we turned to Matthew Primack, Senior Vice President of International Business Affairs and Development at Fanatics, who may know a thing or two on the subject. Fanatics is a licensed sports merchandise retailer. Uh, we're a global company and our area of business is effectively whether we operate retail for um, sports clubs, teams, leagues and federations around the world. Retail being e-commerce stores, venue retail, so stadium retail and also high street retail, brick and mortar. Uh, we have a vertical manufacturing business where we produce licensed sports merchandise. Um, and also a licensing business where we engage third-party specialists to enhance our portfolio. A good place to start is defining exactly what merchandise is and how historically it's been perceived. Matthew, you take this one. Right, so merch has become kind of a bit of a, a commonly used term for stuff you get at an event. Right, it's kind of tour merch or it's event merch or it's, it's merchandise in the moment. But all merch is effectively a product and it's been 
a little dumbed down because it's not intended to be as fashionable or stylish or consumable as something that you might buy on the high street for a retailer. Um, so merch has this kind of a slightly a slight resonance with it that says it's not going to be good because it's just, you know, it's an impulse buy. As with any output, merchandise takes expertise, time and resource to create. So what are the benefits of having merchandise? Why would sports organisations, or any organisation in fact, pour their hard-earned money into making and distributing wearable commemorative items? And to Dr. Lauren Birch, who's here to give us some expert insight. So my name is Dr. Lauren Birch. I am a senior lecturer at Loughborough University London in the Institute of Sport Business. And then I also do research um, in online digital media and sport, looking at brand identity, brand positioning in digital media, and a, a bit of brand authenticity and online abuse as well. So if you're looking at like sports organizations and teams, obviously merchandise isn't going to be your first product. That's going to be what's on the field in this instance, but it, it increases revenue. So for um, you know an easy perspective, it gives you another way to, to make money, match day or even non-match day for that example. Because you know, if you go to a stadium and you want to, you know, encapsulate an experience, you you know, you might buy a scarf, you might buy a hat, or something along those lines um, to help commemorate it. Uh, the other thing that you can focus on is awareness. So particularly, maybe from a global perspective and a global branding perspective for sports organizations. But to reap the benefits, it's not enough to just make merch. With any area of business where you hope to make revenue, be it long term or short term, you need to consider the best way to go about it. You need planning, you need a strategy, and you need to understand exactly who it is you're targeting. I think it's a really interesting perspective of figuring out how do you tap into your markets and then also discussing within merchandising, which markets do you want to serve within that one? So do you want to try and be an everything to everyone, which is very difficult? You have to have a lot of funding and resources within to do that. Or, you know, do you want to try and be a little bit more specific and a little bit more tailored? But if you do something very, very well and you're known for that, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong, you know, with, with going that direction. So, you know, you can you can be a very small, tiny, bespoke sports merchandising and, and branding company and do very, very well if you have a targeted area and you have a great product. Your merch needs to represent your brand. So if your merch isn't the best, things could get a little dicey. Or should I say... Merchandising. The approach needs to be considered and the product needs to be good. But what exactly makes for good merchandise? What factors need to be considered? So when we talk about what good merch is, um, I think the first thing we need to think about is the quality of the product. Um, and is it appropriate for the audience? Has it been designed or developed with the right people in mind? A really good example of that would be the, the evolution and development of women's product in sport or women's merch. Um, and historically, women have not been served as well as they could have been in sport because things would have been effectively men's cuts, just maybe adapted slightly graphically or creatively, but not designed specifically for women or sizing wouldn't be right or cuts and shapes and so on. Um, so good merch, we saw some really good merch emerge at the, um, the Women's Euros here in the UK, which Fanatics operated uh, on behalf of UEFA. Coming to the game, excited to put your shirt on. Yeah, that's probably one of the nicest kits I've seen, to be fair. I'm really looking forward to wearing it. Having this for a home Euros is, is obviously really special. The merch there was really good. 
right? It was really good because it was appropriate for the for the consumer who was interested in the game, the women's game of football. It was designed with that consumer in mind. It was then retailed at the events at the appropriate times. And as a result of that being, as you say, good merch, um, we saw you know, 150% increase on our sales and our versus our expectation because it was the right merch at the right quality, the right price for the right consumer. And that's a really good example of good merch. Another way to think about this idea of good merch again is, is it the right thing at the right time? And is it is it capturing the moment? So a kind of I was there moment or a, a moment of impulse or passion. To truly capture the moment, merchandise needs to harken back to your team or franchise. So curating that recognizable company iconography is crucial. But how exactly can you do that? Answer, through your logos and also through your team colors. Uh, very important for for an organization that they will spend a lot of time and effort doing kind of their logos. Um, and when they have to change, for example, it's a very, very costly and can take years to transition. So the example that I would kind of pull to mind is when you have some of the sports teams in the United States that have been using Native American iconic, you know, iconography you know for their logos and they've had to go in and rebrand and do a very drastic drastic rebranding and it can create a lot of tension both within their fan bases and then if you also think of from a cost perspective like everything they've had previously is now going to be changed over so when you develop this logo i think what makes a really good logo is something that is um i tend to go for more simple in that perspective, but then you start to bring in a, an element that a lot of people underestimate, which is color. So the color in terms of, again, the logo and the branding associated. So we know that New York is going to be white and that pinstripey blue, and it's going to have that on the cap. Or when we're talking about the Dodgers, you're going to have Dodger blue. Um, the Lakers are very funny sometimes because it looks like it's purple and gold, but it's actually referred to as, what is it, arena arena blue like they actually call it blue but it looks purple looks aubergine and in that one so the coloring element comes into it and it does become crucially important in terms of just immediately recognizing oh that's the yankees that those are the lakers that's the dodgers you know if we're taking it into again the uk perspective on this one you know we can look at man united and you know that crest and you know that logo and they keep it the same they don't change it because it is so iconic and well-known within that one. So crucially important. We are back with the Manchester United authentic player edition of the new Manchester United home shirt. We've got the unboxing ready, boys, and I'm so, so gassed. We also wanted to speak to world-class specialists in design. So we reached out to Bureau Borsche, a top-of-the-line global design studio whose portfolio includes heading the design of the rebranding of football teams Inter Milan and Venezia FC, the latter of whom was referred to by GQ as the world's most fashionable football club, to create their new visual identities. We spoke to the house's founder and creative director Mirko Borsche and to his colleague, designer Kolja Buscher. So my name is Mirko Borsche. Uh, I'm based in Munich. I'm a graphic designer and part of the Bureau Mirko Borsche. My name is Kolja Buscher. I'm a graphic designer at Bureau Borsche for seven years now. And of course, it was always a dream to do something for such a big football club or something that's so such a universal topic in society as the football club. Because in the end, as a graphic designer, you want to create something that, that is seen and 
creates a feeling and emotions. That's why I think football and football club in general is a boy's dream. I think realizing as a young kid, you know, the, the crest of your football club and, and seeing everything in that crest or with 18 getting a tattoo of that crest. And, and for that, it's, it's kind of a chance for us as well that our work remains at least for a while. Biro Borcher has collaborated with a variety of clientele, including fashion houses Balenciaga and Givenchy and sportswear brand Supreme, as well as organizations such as Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra and the Design Museum. So we asked them about the unique challenges of working with a beloved football team. I, am, I think the, the, the main difference is target group or like the consumer, because in the end, it's a much broader audience, right? So I think as a brand, it's like maybe one of the most democratic brands you could have because it's like you have young people, old people, rich, you know, like all different kinds of educations, but all uh, everyone is a fan of one club. And uh, I think that makes it quite special because you can't really uh, focus on a few people. You have to focus mainly like on the full population. Yeah, I think as, as Mirko said, it's we're talking to the decision makers, but in the end, I mean, these are our clients, but there are millions, millions of clients that own or shape shape that brand, shape the club. And in, in the end, we, we have to create something for them and not only for the couple of decision makers. Uh, and that's, that makes it, of course, very challenging as we're talking to a target group of every age, education from all over the world. Here's why Venezia FC's rebrand is excellent. Strong brand. The V is the first thing you see and it's instantly recognizable. Colors. The orange and green stay atop the crest while the Lion of St. Mark returns to a gold background. Besides, this tracksuit is pure heat. Yeah, and of course you always have to be aware about the decisions you make you have to respect the heritage, of course, especially for clubs like uh, Internazionale Milano. It's more than 100 years of, of heritage and history and good times and bad times in, in those 100 years. And you, you have to respect it and don't make a full break. It's, it's more about making the next step instead of starting from the beginning. If there's a heritage around the club, you know, it's not all clubs have a big heritage because, I mean, there's a lot of clubs which maybe split it up uh, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, or joined two or three clubs into a new club. I mean, that's that's the case with Venezia, for example. So there's not such a big of a, a history maybe in the club. Then we have to find like history in the city, like just, you know, try to analyze what could be indicators for uh, people of the city to identify themselves and the club and bring that together. So understanding the fan base is crucial and equally as important is knowing the history of the club and of the city. But one factor to consider during the design process, which is becoming increasingly more vital, is how wearable a kit is. Uh, especially for uh, Venezia, the goal was to create something wearable. You know, not just sporty, something wearable, something which also uh, touches like a certain audience. And also was important for us to make, I mean, it's, uh, it's Italy, you know, it's like one of the, uh, in Europe, 
two leading countries in fashion to make kind of a fashion statement. And there was another thing we realized that we don't have a sponsor on top of the jersey. And I mean, they don't have to tell you how many tourists are in Venice and how ugly the souvenirs are in Venice. So we thought if you can create something which has Venezia on top of it and could be also as nice as, you know, with jeans as one on the pitch, if you could actually reach that, we would have also something for a different uh, target group as a souvenir if they go to uh, Venice and bring something back. The shirt that everybody wants, the kit, as they like to say, is that of Venezia FC. Great merchandise has always been important for fans, as it's been a staple item you can wear to every game or event. But now, we're seeing the beginnings of merchandise transitioning from an item worn only for that purpose to one that's worn as a fashion statement. Matthew from Fanatics explained how and why this is becoming the case. So um, a lot of global cultural impact change over the last few years, including the pandemic, um, have had impacts on what people are wearing, right? We've become, as a general as a general rule of thumb, a less formally dressed society, right? Athleisure and the emergence of more comfort clothing generally leads in the direction of sport or sports merchandise in general, right? And, and we see the results of brands like Nike at the moment exceptionally good because that kind of product is being worn more. So that is also evolving into licensed sports merchandise as well. And we're beginning to see brands, in particular the likes of PSG, working on their brand as something more accessible as a lifestyle proposition. And they've got the combination of the cool relationship with Nike and Jordan, plus really good design sensibilities, plus the whole kind of the romance of Paris. And, and so PSG has become one of the sort of standout brands in the, in the sports universe that is becoming more fashionable. But I don't think that journey is complete. Then you have, coming from another angle, you've got brands who are working with sports franchises or IP to create them in a more fashionable way. So it's, it's sort of emerging, it's coming together from different angles. I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're on the way. So we've given you an introduction to the world of sports merchandise. We've told you what merchandise is, why you should make it, how to make merch good, and what factors to consider where designing it. And among those factors is how wearable it may be outside of the context of a sports game. Very shortly, we'll talk more about this idea of sports merchandise as fashion. Are there any non-fans who wear merchandise? Why would they do this? What, in the modern era, has made merchandise more accessible? And what does the future look like in this space? Find out all this and more after the break. Before the break, we spoke a little bit about what merchandise is and how it's historically been viewed. But it looks like times are changing and merch is more and more being viewed as a multi-purpose piece of clothing, one for the pitch, the stalls and the streets. You could say we're in a new era of merchandise. So naturally, we had to speak to Samantha Gibb, Head of PR and Digital Marketing for New Era in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. 
My name is Samantha Gibb and I'm Head of PR and Digital Marketing for New Era in Europe. Um, I work closely with the team on driving the brand strategy to excite and engage with our fans across media, influencers, social media and e-commerce. New Era is a global sportswear brand originating out of the US back in 1920. And we're best known for being the official baseball cap for Major League Baseball, but also hold global licenses across headwear and apparel with the NFL and NBA. But here in Europe, we've entered the world of motorsports, so as the official headwear partner most recently for Red Bull Racing, alongside McLaren, Alpine F1 and Formula E. And we also partner with various teams and competitions right across football, rugby, cricket and golf. When you think about which pieces of merch have the most wearability factor, caps will definitely be up there. They're smaller, which makes them more portable, easier to take on and off when needed, and make a statement without being overpowering. What else about this clothing item makes fans so very cappy? A cap can really define an outfit. It, it really complements an outfit. It's a really affordable and changeable item that can really change that look and feel. In my opinion, caps are a really amazing accessory to utilise. They can take a really simple or boring look and make it look a lot more interesting. But when merchandise, such as the caps that New Era retails, is so wearable, at what point does that extend to non-fans? Are there franchises whose merch is so popular that even those who don't otherwise dabble in the sports world wear it? We asked Matthew Primack from Fanatics. Absolutely, without a doubt, the answer to that question is yes. Um, there are plenty of examples of uh, sports teams or brands or franchises or federations that effectively transcend their sport to become something that's part of lifestyle or culture. You may ask, without attending any sports games or events, how would somebody even come across the merchandise of sports organisations? The answer to that, listeners, sits in that intersection between sport, entertainment, lifestyle and culture. So I think team popularity isn't always determined by trophy success. It, it can be heavily influenced by trending players joining a team at a particular time. It can be celebrity fans or social media, even TV shows. So I'd have to say that the New York Yankees have the largest logo appeal amongst consumers um, who aren't necessarily traditional followers of baseball or any US sports um, for that matter. So this is driven by a global love affair uh, with the city of New York, thanks to TV and music artists who have all put New York onto a global stage, leaving many people wanting a piece of the Big Apple. I think Yankees headwear is hugely popular amongst our female consumers who are looking directly at the likes of Kendall Jenner or Gigi Hadid, Rihanna for style inspiration. And they, they've all been seen in our, in our New York Yankees caps. What is it about Rihanna that really stands out? I mean, she's the most incredible fashion icon. Even, even as a child, I, would, I remember thinking, she could beat me, but she cannot beat my outfit. <laughs> The, the Yankees baseball cap is a fashion item. I think, you know, there was some research done a long time ago now um, that asked, you know, Europeans, what do you, what does the NY logo stand for? And there were respondents who generally replied, well, it stands for yes, no. Didn't know it was New York or New York Yankees, but the N and the Y stood for yes and no. No cap. That's a true story. That's because that transcended. It, it had become part of popular culture. Another great example of that is Ferrari. Right? Ferrari is a wearable brand that has gone beyond Ferrari owners and even those interested in Formula One. 
to, to a more broad-based consumer. And Formula One in general is beginning to move across from fans of the sport into uh, merchandise that's popular outside that. And that's often driven by other forms of media. So the F1 series on Netflix, Drive to Survive, has introduced a ton of fans to the drama of Formula One. They've built relationships with it, even though maybe they haven't been to an event or don't necessarily watch it uh, on TV, but the drama around it. And we've seen, and we operate, the Fanatics operates the F1 e-com store. We've seen you know, an increase in younger audience members, female consumers, getting into that brand more and more through these other media entry points. In fact, of the $4 billion Ferrari makes in sales revenue every year, $2 billion, that's half the amount, comes from merchandise. It quite literally pays to get that kind of exposure for and from your merch. We're all feeling the pressure. Max Lack Lewis Hamilton. Struggling so much out there. So it's clear consumers are forking out on merchandise, and seemingly they're getting their money's worth. But why now? Why and how has merchandise become more desirable and or accessible? Lauren Burt from Loughborough University London outlined some key factors. Um, yeah, I think the desirable link is, is the fashion for me. And that, you know, the combining that it's not just a pair of trainers, but it can go with an outfit. So that, you know, from the desirable standpoint, I think that's the really strong link. Um, in terms of uh, accessibility, in terms of cost, I think what we're looking at is, again, you're just getting better at sourcing materials and bringing materials in that are a little bit higher quality. But because the market has expanded so much in terms of its wealth, I mean, we're talking about in an you know, athletic wear industry, it's a $315 billion market globally. It's estimated to be $450 billion by about 2028. So with that, you get this idea of economies of scale. So basically, the wider the market, the more I can produce, it's it's more affordable for everyone. So you can get really good quality made materials for a lower price point because they can just produce it. They can produce more of it and kind of, you know, mass produce it from that perspective. Um, you know, and it's also, I think, becoming more accessible, too, because we're now making conscientious efforts um, in sports organizations and these companies to make them more inclusive in general. So you're starting to see marketing campaigns come out um, that have this, you know, inclusivity um, I, I think you're starting now to see those those different kind of levels of stratification coming across in terms of price points. And we're starting to bring in particular fashion designers into it. And so it's just upping the price point a little bit more. So that would kind of make it a little bit less accessible. But that actually might be done intentionally to create that ultra exclusive imagery around it. So just altering the price point. So now we can say it's even more exclusive. So when we make things more accessible in one way, you might brand it differently for a luxury item in another way. Lauren mentioned there that certain fashion designers are collaborating with teams and franchises on their merchandise. This isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. For example, Levi's partnered with Mexico's national football team in 1978. But we have seen an increase in recent years, with examples such as Napoli, whose kits are currently manufactured by Emporio Armani, or Rowing Blazers capsule collection with the NBA and teams like the New York Knicks and Los Angeles Lakers. We're also seeing celebrities join in, most recently with Grammy winner Rosalia's collaboration with Barcelona FC. So why is this happening? And what's in it for both parties? 
sport is um, is a mass and populous proposition, whereas fashion or high fashion or influence and so on tend to be quite um, premium priced or, or some, some would say elite, right? And so sport gives the fashion brands an entry to a more accessible audience and a different type of passion community. All brands seeking fans uh, or customers wherever they can find them and, and sport you know, offers that, that entry point. So the, the brands like Ralph Lauren and DKMY and so on, through a platform like Fanatics, which is hitting you know, maybe 100 million customers in North America, that's a channel they wouldn't otherwise be able to get into. And the consumer is there and they are passionate about their sport and they're looking for different ways to connect. I'm as basic as it gets when it comes to sports, okay? I don't watch them. I don't care. I buy hats because I like the color and I like the fit. The amount of men who think I know a thing or two and just come up and talk to me about the New York Yankees, I'm just like, go sports! It's becoming increasingly more acceptable to wear merchandise outside of games as the world of sport continues to intersect with the world of fashion. If you've been following Force Material since the beginning, you'll know that we've talked about the overlap between sportswear and streetwear before, and by extension, the crossover between sportswear and fashion. But while we had this set of experts on the line, we had to ask, how has the idea of sportswear as fashion evolved in recent years, and what factors have contributed to this evolution? Matthew Primack. Uh, we're seeing that crossover more and more. It's attractive to the sports brands because it glamorizes the sport, it, it lifts the premium nature, and it's attractive to the fashion brands because it gives them access to a wider and slightly different consumer base. And then, you know, sports brands are becoming more and more attractive, whether it's the celebrity of the individual, you know, with people like Kylian Mbappe or uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, um, or LeBron James, or, you know, we could, there's a huge list of talent that we could talk to who are attractive icons that um, the everyday consumer looks at and goes, I want to be like that person, I want to dress like that person, that person inspires me. And they obviously have the ability to pretty much buy and wear whatever they want, right? So we've got the influencer effect of superstars. We've got a social, macroeconomic, cultural change in the way our wardrobes are built. Uh, and then we've got forward-thinking uh, brands, again, like PSG, like Ferrari, and others that are looking at this space and saying, you know, we can do more to service that consumer. So it's, it's, it's a real evolution that's happening. We also got a perspective from Mirko Borscher, founder and creative director of German design studio Bureau Borscher. There was always a relationship between football and fashion. It just changed to a better style. I think the, 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 the German national team was sponsored by Strenes for ages. It's just, you know, this kind of brand is not, it's like very casual and not maybe that interesting brand. And it definitely is something different if Montclair is working together with Inter or Off-White is working together with AC Milan or Dior is working together with PSG. And I think all these connections, I mean, in times of influences and things like these, you have a, you have a very wide audience, I think, for brands like, uh, like these, it's very important to have this broad audience. I think you have all these references. I mean, if you want to research all these references and, and you're like on all these Instagram pages or whatever, you know, who uh, collect uh, vintage jerseys, you see like a big heritage coming from punk uh, over Oasis to rap music. So it was always, I think, in youth culture somehow. And somehow also the designs, like the way things are designed and, and, and the cuts are, I think, kind of special. So 
it's nothing for, for me. It's like, I think the only difference uh, made now is that also magazines like the Italian Vogue or, you know, like Vanity Fair or like other magazines uh, call this out as a fashion rift and show jerseys like Venezia, for example, on their pages, which they wouldn't have been done before. And they would have done it uh, before and shown maybe the football jerseys of Balenciaga. The intersection between sportswear and fashion has so much potential to grow that, as Samantha from New Era says, it's hard to put a cap on it. So the influence sportswear is having in fashion, I think, is quite phenomenal. Um, we've all witnessed how sportswear has come full circle over the decades. I think the two are entwined, and I, I don't think that demand is going away anytime soon. In today's markets, brands have to be nimble and reactive to trends. I think the world of social media offers people immediate access to global trends. And as a global brand, we have the capabilities, thankfully, uh, to react quickly and to deliver quick to market programs to capitalize on those changing trends. We've spoken about how sports merchandise has changed from the past to the present. So what will sports merch look like going forward? We asked Dr. Lauren Birch for a line on the future of wearable merchandise. Some interesting things I think going into the future might be the incorporation of all the different wearable elements that we see. Um, so if, you know, not only just like the Apple Watches and the Whoops um, to like even the Aura Rings and now even the branded jewelries that are gonna come into this and incorporating that into the merchandising and sportswear element of it where maybe it's a little bit less, you know, obvious and more again, kind of incorporated into the whole outfit aesthetic of it. We've spoken about everything merchandise has to offer, from fashioning to cashing in, and why it's key for teams, leagues, and fans. And we've seen from some of the multiple examples that it can catapult your property to a whole new audience. And it's an audience that, through collaboration, continues to reach more and more. So when it comes to merchandising, you may as well merchandise in. You've been listening to Force Material the podcast telling the stories of where sport meets entertainment, lifestyle, and culture. Thank you so much to our guests this episode, Matthew Primack, Lauren Birch, Mirko Borscher, Kolya Buscher, and Samantha Gibb. And please join us next time as we explore another story.